Wealth can be measured in many ways. As it grows, life can quickly become complex, creating the need for more focused planning. Welcome to We're Talking Money with OmniStar Financial Group. OmniStar has been helping clients achieve financial success for more than 20 years in a client-centric and stress-free environment. With a reputation built on a long track record of working with people who want to grow and protect their assets, OmniStar illuminates the blind spots and provides actionable strategies to help you achieve what's most important. This is where you can count on straightforward and unbiased advice from a team of professionals that are passionate about your success. I'm Phil Clark, and today Roger Fuller with our firm joins us. And uh, Roger's been managing our option strategies. He's got more than 25 years of experience, and I'm really glad to have you on the show with me today. Roger, welcome aboard. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're going to cover a lot more than just coronavirus today. Uh, more importantly, we're going to talk about whether this is a repeat of 2008, what we're seeing in our fundamental data that we track for the strategies that we manage. Then we're going to look at the key segments of the economy and then technical indicators, uh, some of them suggesting we might be reaching a bottom. And then lastly, uh, we're going to cover insider trading, uh, but a lot of people don't know to look at that. So, um, so Roger, before we dive in, anything that we need to make sure we cover today? I think we cover mindset. Um, you know, the my dad was in this business for for a number of years uh, back in the during the seventies, and his slogan was, which I, I live by, the only way to get rich is to do it slowly. And so I think uh, keeping that, you know, keeping a level head, um, understanding what we're dealing with, and understand that there's always been an obstacle. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I've been in the business now for about 30 years. I, I think your tenure is pretty close to the same. So we've both heard those things. And without a doubt, there will always be a challenge out there. There's always a hurdle. There's always a new something. So the progression and, and measure of financial markets in response to the coronavirus outbreak has been a little reminiscent of 2008. And it created a lot of fear along the way. and. And frankly, I think we we still have people remembering that it, it's been a while, but maybe not long enough. So let me be clear. We don't believe this is a repeat of 2008. What we do believe, however, is the impact from coronavirus will likely be large and it's going to be something that will affect the economy. But our economy is on a much more solid footing today than it was in 2008. But I don't believe we have the same set of conditions that we did, uh, say, 12 years ago. I agree with that. And we also have a better understanding from 2008 on how to handle situations like this, what to implement to help offset the damage done by the uh, by the virus or the economic damage done by it. So I think we have a better defensive plan already put in place from 2008. Um, and so having that experience from there, I think will help us navigate through this situation as well. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound overly optimistic, but in our opinion, we believe investors should be level-headed at this point. Roger, you said it a few minutes ago as we were coming on air, remembering that investing is a long-term strategy and staying invested has always been the best course of action. Bottom line, it's uncertain. What we know is that containment and social distancing are ultimately achieved by reducing economic activity. What an oxymoron. That's the last thing we want to do. 
But in order to contain this thing, reducing economic activity is, is going to be part of the solution. So we're faced with resource constraints in healthcare systems. A number of strong incentives are in place to encourage aggressive containment of the virus. All of that's good. The impact on economic activity, by and large, is, is going to be sharp, in our opinion. But as you said a little while ago, Roger, uh, the outbreak will eventually dissipate. It's not going to last forever. Uh, it's going to dissipate, and we will get back to uh, what what most folks would consider something of a normal economic system or a, just a normal economy. So, um, you know, we work with BlackRock. Uh, they've been a, a good partner of ours for a number of years. They do a lot with our strategies and help us in in a number of ways. And BlackRock has uh, what they call their investment institute. And I thought it was interesting. Uh, they sent some things to us uh, this week. And one of the things that they concluded was now is the time for some decisive, preemptive and coordinated policy response from uh, our country's leaders to avoid uh, the disruptions uh, to things like income streams and financial flows that could cause more persistent economic damage. So from their perspective, and I think we're much in agreement, uh, failure to act could end what we know as the current economic cycle. This um the timing of the virus, unfortunately, going into an election year when it seems like the uh, political parties, no matter what your beliefs are, are more head to head now than normal. And so in a time where they're competing against each other and, and usually at this time degrading each other, if you will, it's not time for that now. It's time for them to work together. It's time for them to put their differences aside, to put America first, to put the economy first and to realize Bottom line is they work for us. They're representations of the of America, and they need to work for the Americans to better America and to help protect us. We hope that they will do that. And now is the time for them to to put their differences behind them, stand together, work together, and come up and help make some solutions to help us get through this. I agree with you uh, in every way. I think right now political debates they've been front and center. Lots of the normal rhetoric, lots of the political rancor, if you will. And frankly, I agree with you, Roger. We've got to put all of that aside. It's time for them to go to work now and and uh, do some heavy lifting. And I think it's going to take it to, I think it's going to take a lot of heavy lifting to get this thing resolved. So I want to bring up a couple of points or at least throw a few comparisons in and, and try to put some perspective on this coronavirus. You know, Roger, it was discovered in late 2019. So it, it had no impact on fourth quarter of last year. Uh, gross domestic product or GDP was not affected. I think our firm and many of those that, that we work with and that we talk to on a regular basis, I believe we're all confident in saying it. it is certainly going to push gross domestic product growth down in the first two quarters of 2020 and, and possibly the last two quarters. So Here's what we know about the virus. Uh, we've got a rough number of 130,000 cases worldwide, around 4,700 deaths, and approximately 75,000 recoveries. I want to compare that to influenza. The severity of corona to influenza is something that I don't believe is talked about enough. In the U.S. alone, 
according to uh, very reliable sources like the CDC, 16,000 roughly have died in the current flu season. Uh, That's 2019 into 2020. And there's approximately 280,000 hospitalized as we make this podcast. That is a huge set of numbers. And if you put that beside coronavirus, the juxtaposition of those two numbers in terms of the death rate, there's hardly a comparison. Coronavirus worldwide is roughly a fourth of the number of deaths that happen every year in the U.S. from influenza. So I think the mortality rate for the flu being significantly higher is reason for us to step back for a minute and just ask, what should Americans be more concerned about? Is it coronavirus or is it getting your flu shot? You know, and I don't know the answer to that, Roger, but what I do know is that we've put so much focus on this coronavirus, it's causing disruptions unlike a number of other situations that we've endured. This is putting a a real damper on not only the people's spirit, uh, but it's putting a damper on economic activity and and is likely to continue. But it seems like the influenza virus is a much bigger problem, but we don't hear anyone talking about that. Uh, I agree. And I think that's probably because you hear about the flu every year. Every year, you're reminded to get your flu shot. Every year, we hear the numbers about the flu. It's something that we've grown accustomed to or almost uh, gotten used to. And now that we have something that's grabbing news headlines, something that's scaring people, and it's become a tidal wave. Uh, once you know, once it started getting reported on, then more and more, then all the cancellations. And so now um, the news of it is a pandemic more than anything because you can't turn on the television, you can't turn on the radio, you can't can't do anything without some kind of talk about the, the virus. Yeah, just walking around the office, we hear it uh, everywhere you go. It doesn't matter what store you're in, what you're doing throughout the day, there's a strong likelihood that you're going to hear something about it. So there is some good news that we should talk about here for just a minute. The rate of infection appears to be slowing in China, but it it continues to grow pretty rapidly in other countries. And the impact of the virus on more regional and local economies, look, it, it's been pretty intense. Uh, we don't really know where the end of of all of this is going to be found, but we know an end is coming. And if we look back at at the discovery of uh, of coronavirus, what we pretty well surmise is that about ninety days uh, since they discovered it or announced it, it's been about ninety days for it to start reaching its peak. Uh, at least that's what the indicators are suggesting at this point. So that's good news. And uh, so now it's a matter of of letting this thing work itself through all of the countries and, and hopefully getting some good meds to continue to fight this um, this global battle. So so hard to confirm how Chinese industries are operating. Uh, but word on the street is something around 20% of capacity. Who knows if that's true? That's simply what we've been hearing. Let's talk through some key segments of the economy. I think it's so important to remind our listeners what the key segments are, how they work. There's so many moving parts to, uh, to our economy. So for the moment, our economy continues to operate. Stock markets remain open. Things are basically normal. 
But investors anticipate a slowdown in U.S. growth. Some are even proclaiming a recession and a stagnation or outright decline in corporate earnings. So you got a lot of pundits. You got a lot of uh, prognosticators. Everyone seems to, to be hypothesizing at this point. But before you start believing all the hyperbole, let's look at some of these key segments of the economy and, and the potential effects from coronavirus. First, the consumer segment uh, divided in three parts. Those are spending for durable goods, non-durable goods, and services. So the services is the largest part of that, and it makes up about 64% of consumer spending. Now, some of you are probably asking, well, what's included in the services? Things like housing, utilities, healthcare, financial services, recreation, transportation, food services, and accommodations. Those would all be uh, what we consider service items. The coronavirus is already disrupting these service providers, uh, particularly transportation. We've seen airline stocks and a number of transport stocks. Uh, they've been beat up pretty hard. And things like food services and accommodations, we're, we're seeing some effects in, in those areas. Just as you might expect, though, the outlook for this segment is much lower for the next two quarters. So definitely everyone is expecting the effects to continue there for a little while. Spending on non-durable goods accounts for about 25% of our consumer spending. And then the remainder, about 13%, is durable goods. So our opinion is coronavirus will affect supply chains, and that's likely to lower the durable goods spending over the next few quarters. Therefore, we, we have an outlook for this segment that's clearly lower. Now, spending on durable goods, such as food and clothing, probably an area that will be less affected. Uh, in fact, we're pretty confident that we might see growth. Uh, we think that's a more likely outcome over the next few quarters uh, as it relates to things like... Now, next, we're going to dig into gross private domestic investments. And I want to be sure that everyone doesn't confuse that with GDP. This is GPDI. So gross private domestic investment. Uh, let's talk through that one for a minute. This segment was basically poised to recover from the partial resolution of the trade war. But the coronavirus is, is pretty likely to depress those results for at least the next few quarters. Uh, the main components of the GPDI or that gross private domestic investment are investment structures, uh, equipment, intellectual property, residential, things of that nature. And then investment in structures has been the hardest hit, by the way, by these trade tensions uh, with the onset of the coronavirus. We just can't look for a turnaround in the real near term. Investment in equipment has also been weakened by the trade war. Again, we don't expect that trend to reverse in the current environment. And the strongest component of GPDI has been intellectual property products. So things like software, research and development, entertainment. With people staying at home, this spending, uh, it's likely going to be less affected by the coronavirus. So residential, that might be a mixed bag. 
Some home builders are already facing supply chain slowdowns, but what we're hoping anyway, and I think the industry mostly is hoping that the the low interest rates uh, might help uh, support demand and and uh, and maybe avoid some of that some of the slowdowns that would naturally occur there. So so a lot going on in uh, those first two things that we just talked about as far as segments of the economy, Roger. And of course, we're going to dig into the third major segment which is import-export. But before I do, is there anything that I missed on those first two? No, I don't think there's anything you missed. I think um, some interesting facts, though, you know, if people are now uh, self-quarantining and they're staying at home, doing this now compared to, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, is they have a lot more options while they're at home. So they will still be consuming, you know, entertainment via Netflix or Hulu. They spend a lot of time on the Internet, which could lead to more online shopping. They want to find something to do. And if they're stuck inside, uh, they'll be doing it most likely on on one screen or another. Also, uh, on the lower interest rates, refinancing, home refinances, that is something that can be done from your couch. Uh, you don't have to go into the bank anymore to do that. And with the interest rates continuing to drop, um, you, we may see a, an increase of that as well, which does free up some more money for the spender who does the refinancing. I think you're right. Cabin fever was a major fear. No one wanted to stay at home. But today, entertainment is it is in a much much different place. Uh, there's there's lots of reasons why you don't want to leave home anymore. You want to be there because you have so many ways to be entertained. So that's a great point, and hopefully that will help as we as we start to stare into the face of these possible quarantines and but as you called them, the uh, self quarantining. Hopefully that's going to be a little easier and people will uh, people will not be so fearful of doing that uh, and, and they won't have cabin fever as much. So uh, probably bodes pretty well for someone like Netflix, to your point. Let's talk about the import export side of things. I want to emphasize a few things on this segment. I want to go through very carefully. Uh, the import-export segment because the math works a little differently in this segment. First, we definitely, and we've already said this, but we absolutely expect a slowdown in exports. That is, goods and services sold to other countries from the U.S. Clearly, that is a negative for the U.S. Exports from this country are a huge part of our GDP, and we always like to see that rising. Imports, on the other hand, subtracts from U.S. economic growth. That means that uh, as imports from countries affected by the virus are reduced, the result is positive for U.S. economic growth. So there's a bit of a balancing act. Uh, As we see our exports slow, we should see our imports slow. And so that'll certainly help balance things. Remains to be seen how much that balancing helps us overall. But I I would say with confidence that uh, GDP will likely be moved down a little bit as we go through the remainder of this year. In fact, I've been hearing a number of, of forecasters talk about uh, something on, on the order of a 1.5 to 1.9 uh, growth rate for GDP in second quarter of this year. So a lot to consider there. Our last segment of the economy is government spending. And after years of the sequestering in Washington, the federal government's been accelerating their spending over the last year. I think pretty much the entire country has seen that. In some way, uh, it's affecting uh, almost every state. 
Also, being an election year, we tend to see the strongest economic growth. And so I think that government spending during 2020 is likely to pick up. All in all, the the economic forecast, pretty good. But again, I would reiterate that gross domestic product is probably going to come down uh, a little bit as we go through uh, second quarter and, and even third and fourth quarter. So, you know, the onset of the coronavirus is one thing. The reaction to the coronavirus could be something else entirely. And the virus could elude containment uh, or mutate and lead to stricter quarantines, effectively shutting down the economy. And I think that's the worst case, but it is something that that has to be considered. Even without a harmful mutation, though, or an upsurge in the cases, our current estimates could face uh, downward revisions. I talked about that a few minutes ago with uh, in relation to GDP. And if businesses and consumers cut back sharply on travel or consumption, obviously the the effect is going to increase. So make no mistake, uh, that is a real risk. It's um, very difficult to accurately quantify that since no one can predict what the reactions are going to be. So we find ourselves in a place of additional uncertainty, and, and we, we really don't know. And that is, a, that is one thing that the market and investors fear more than anything is uncertainty. Um, it reminds me of the presidential election a while back where, you know, after November election and all the hanging chads in Florida, we weren't exactly sure who our president was going to be. And because of that, we saw the market decline from election day all the way through January until it was official. and. Because of that uncertainty, people get nervous. And right now we are facing an uncertainty of the total situation of what we're dealing with, the total impact of what we're dealing with. And because of that uncertainty, people get nervous. They sell out of the market, which triggers more selling, which then gets people more nervous because they see the market going down and and that continues. And so it's not just the, the financial impact that the virus is having. It is is really the um, psychological impact it's having as well. They get scared about their investments. And sometimes when we're scared, we overreact. I agree, Roger. And we've seen this so many times through our career. So this is nothing new, just a different set of circumstances. But you're right. Fear plays a huge factor and and it tends to uh, it tends to create this uh, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once the fear kicks in, we can literally talk ourselves into it. And I know that sounds simple, but it is, it's true. So at this point, investors, they're reacting just as we expect. They're moving to more risk-off investments, hence the sell-off in stocks. And things like treasury bonds are reaching all-time highs. We've seen the yield curve invert again. And uh, the Federal Reserve lowered rates uh, over the last couple of weeks. And that's possibly on the table again as they come together at their next meeting. We're already hearing some rumblings about additional rate cuts. So we don't have much lower to go before we get into negative territory, uh, though a number of our foreign counterparts are, are already in that position. So in our opinion, we don't see this as a prudent move because we ask the question, what does it solve? Let me put it like this. The Fed's rate cuts are designed to increase demand. Everybody knows that. But the current economic weakness and what we are anticipating from the coronavirus is more about supply and supply chain disruption, not the lack of spending. So if you think about the consumer, they're spending very well right now. The spending remains healthy. 
And with all due respect, cutting rates is not something that will fix a supply issue. So our view is the Fed has very few tools at this point, but a decisive and preemptive policy, we think that could go a long way. But I don't believe that just simply lowering interest rates is going to get the job done. Given the uncertainty around what we believe will likely be a significant economic disruptor, we think a sooner than later attitude is an absolutely appropriate stance And I certainly hope that Washington and and all of our leaders continue to move in that direction. Assuming we have fiscal stimulus from the White House, um, a couple of things that we'll mention that would likely be included uh, in that stimulus, things like rebuilding the nation's infrastructure instead of just focusing on a tax cut. President Trump, uh, I think it's important to note, uh, he did clear the first hurdle here. Uh, He signed into law the coronavirus funding bill. Uh, That's billions of dollars that are going directly into the fight of containing and getting this coronavirus out of our way and which will allow us to normalize at, at a much, much faster pace. So one of the most critical parts, however, is survival of small business. And i I really want to emphasize that, and they must be supported. We know that uh, President Trump has signed into law some things that are going to support that, but we've got to keep a really close eye on that one, Roger, because disruptions and financial shortfalls with small businesses, they are affected in a much, much bigger way than publicly traded companies um, that can create bonds and sell their own paper. It's a much different world for the small investor. Those folks are valuable to us. But if we don't support them in the right way, if they don't get uh, kind of the kind of support that they're going to need, those employers could become extinct. Bottom line, in my opinion, is explicit financial policy must be put in place and it, it could certainly help us avoid what many are calling the potential for our next recession. Absolutely. A lot of these companies don't have the, the deep pockets of, of bigger companies. If they're not month to month, they're you know every other month uh, away from maybe not staying in business. So they need to have access to funds. They need to have very low interest rate access to funds just to keep them afloat. And again, if this is a, a 30, 60, 90 day uh, disruption, you know something to carry them through that so they can stay afloat, but not only just stay afloat, but also keep their employees paid, even if not on a full-time level, at least keep money in their pockets so we can keep that cycle going. Yeah, I think when you when you consider it from that perspective, it really begins to illuminate uh, the disruption in the economy. It's not just about the business. It's about all the employees. It's about everyone being able to continue uh, some kind of a normal lifestyle. And that's so important because uh, as that slows, spending would would follow that. And if spending slows, I, I know we talk about it a lot around the firm, spending slows, that's generally what can tip us into a recession or a very bearish economic environment. Let's talk a little bit about insider trading. When we're looking at the markets, uh, while stocks are on the this wild ride that's mostly down, I think it's important for us to recognize that insider sentiment, so all these folks in these publicly traded companies, they've started to become exceedingly bullish over the last several weeks um, in the midst of of what most would call pretty broad market pain. Corporate insiders looked the massive selling right in the eyes and they responded by buying. Insider sentiment data uh, provided to us by Vickers Stock Research shows that insiders are buying up shares and their volume of buying these shares is quite convincing. So 
this gives additional weight to the uh, to the sentiment that comes from those transactions and clearly uh, sends some kind of a message. So we're not saying that insiders have a crystal ball, but assuming this health crisis follows the same path to resolution as those that came before it, insiders seem to see value in the current pricing of stocks. You know, another thing my, my dad always taught me about the market is Stock market is one of those p- rare places that can have a huge sell and have nobody come to shop. Uh, but what I think these insiders are seeing is the fact that there is a huge sell right now and they see value in what they're buying. And it's it's across the board. Like you said, this is not just one or two coming in, but it's a, it's a good bit of insiders coming in with good volume. And I think they're seeing the value that is out there. Well, we've been talking with a lot of clients over the last few weeks. And as you know, Roger, we've had a number of uh, really great client conversations. We we have some of the best clients in the world and um, our clients are in a number of states and it's always great to to talk to them. Um, but hey, they're human and and a number of them have expressed some fear, just just as we would expect in a situation like this. I, I think one of the greatest values here is that we continue to remind them that now is a time for them to keep a long-term perspective. Part of the comprehensive planning that we deliver considers major events, just like coronavirus. And it's true. And I think it's uh, now is a good time to to restate that and reiterate that. Stress testing for our clients is probably one of the best values that we provide. And, and it should provide some comfort to our clients during periods of unstable markets and economic disruptions, clearly going through that right now. So the ultimate depth and duration of the coronavirus impact, it is uncertain, but we remain confident that its grasp is transitory and this outbreak will dissipate. Absolutely. I, I do believe the stress testing is very important. Um, I think when we, we talk to clients, especially in a, in a bull market, and we can tell them about the stress tests and, and success rates, it, it may not have much of an impact. But when we have conversations with them during markets like this and remind them about the stress test, and the stress test is just that. It tests circumstances that we are going through now and even worse. No market has ever gone up every year in a row. Pullbacks are normal. There's no question as we as we look back, and it doesn't matter if you look back 10 years, 50 years, you can go back to the beginning of the markets and we've always had these challenges. They're going to continue. This won't be the last time that we face significant disruption in our markets, in our economy. It's so serious and it's it's creating a lot of fear, but it will dissipate and a economic activity is going to normalize. In the meantime, uh, our stance is staying invested because our strategies are designed for long-term investors. Investing is at its best when it's viewed long-term. So I don't want our listeners to misconstrue that message. We're very active in our strategies. We're very active in our monitoring the strategies and looking for new opportunities. And we continue looking for value throughout the market. So uh, we're trimming positions. We're buying new positions in an effort to better ourselves and be better prepared for the ultimate rebound. I should also say that rebalancing strategies that we're implementing, they provide opportunities that uh, basically call for reducing overallocated asset classes and then redeploying those proceeds to areas that look to offer better value. So we don't have the luxury of getting emotional. We have to stay calm. We have to follow our rules. Uh, we have to look for uh, ways 
to to comfort our clients and help them understand that these are normal situations, uh, though they don't seem normal. These are things that happen in the market. So, um, so yeah, those are good points that you provided there, Roger. I'm going to roll into a little bit of technical analysis. Lots of what's called technicians out there today. And I think one of the problems with technical data or reading the markets using the technical charts is you can quickly get lost in a multitude of charts and oscillators and trend lines and ratios. And really knowing how to interpret these so-called signals presents yet another problem. Uh, You hear about them, but not everybody knows how to read them. I'm going to provide a few simple thoughts on what the technicals are saying, and I'm going to do my best to avoid that cryptic jargon that you always hear when someone talks about the technicals that can, can you, it usually leads to a lot of confusion. Uh, first, let's take a look at the VIX or volatility index. This index is often called the fear index and uh, no better time to talk about that than now. When it moves higher, stock prices generally move lower. And when the VIX moves lower, stock prices tend to move higher. That's pretty simple. At this point, the VIX is trading at well above average levels. And naturally, stock prices, they're lower. So how can this fear index, as it's called, how can that help us uh, better read the markets and help us make better decisions? In our opinion, this single metric cannot accurately call tops or bottoms. And I don't think anyone should ever look at one metric or one uh, indicator and make a decision. Probably should be used to simply determine if we have above average fear or risk in the market or below average risk. We don't think this is a repeat of 2008, but there are certainly some similarities that would make someone begin to feel that way. So I can appreciate when people ask that question. It may not be the same as far as, like I said, as far as the way we handle it and the way we're positioned right now, it could be the same fear level. And right now that fear level could be, is, as shown by the VIX, is at the same or getting close to the same level as 2008. It's a different fear, maybe for different reasons, but it's fear nonetheless. Yeah, it is fear. And it is likely pointing to what we think will be the bottom of this, uh, of this sell-off in equities. And so I like to say time to get your shopping list together because likely we're getting to levels where where prices become very reasonable now and and sideline cash will likely be deployed in the near term. So uh, let's talk about puts and calls. They provide some pretty darn good uh, indications of how traders are looking at the near-term trading environment. So when that ratio rises, we know that the general sentiment in the market is lower. So some pretty pretty good ways to read what is expected, um, and that's based on these these option contracts, Roger. Yep, and there's a mindset with a. Uh with option contracts, uh, people buy calls because they're bullish and they're greedy and they want to make money. People buy puts because they're protective and they're scared and they don't want to lose money. So right now, what I'm seeing out there in the market is the the put premiums are pretty high, which means people are scared and they want to protect. They want to protect their investments. They want to protect their stocks. But on the flip side of that, people are still pretty bullish and they're still betting high on, on the upside because the call premiums are also selling at a so it's it's almost another fear index, if you will. Um, when when these things begin to occur, it, it's a tug of war in some ways, and so you've got the 
the put sellers and the call buyers, and and they're they're battling for which way the market's going to go. And right now, the ratio that we use remains a bit elevated. So, uh, and and that's exactly what you would expect because the markets are down. Uh, that's clearly a bearish sentiment. But as Roger just said you're beginning to see a much better premium on the call side. So that says that we're starting to see a bit of a turn in what is expected. And so when those calls begin to uh, be sold, and certainly when they are sold enough to start driving this ratio down, uh, then I believe we've, we've got some pretty good indication that maybe the worst of the selling is over. Correct. They're they're either betting on a rebound or betting on continued volatility. Definitely, I think the new normal is volatility. I we're we're not going to get out of volatility for the near term. I think it could be this way for uh, the next several weeks and even months. Suffice it to say, volatility is going to uh, continue, and and there will be some pretty uh, some, some pretty roller coaster like rides. I think as we um, as we head into the next several weeks and months, I don't think this selling is going to go much deeper. If it does, I'm going to be a little surprised, but uh, certainly it can. But I think we're getting to a to a place where this undervalue uh, is going to be recognized and we should see some buying action begin to take hold. So what does all of this mean? Well, I'm going to try to start summing things up a little bit. Stocks have clearly moved into a bearish mood and bonds have been exceedingly bullish on a relative basis. So from a technical standpoint, we believe that stocks may have a little more downside before things begin to improve. Bonds, conversely, appear overvalued with very little room to move up in value. So depending on your capacity for risk, this could be a good time to rotate some of your fixed income to stock. In today's case, stocks are underperforming and bonds are outperforming, shaving some of the gains from the bonds to buy stocks that have sold off in recent weeks is nothing more than rebalancing. In this case, however, the asset class that outperformed happens to be the one it is generally expected to underperform. You're taking the same approach you would and, and taking your winners off the table. Um, one of the things we always said in, in a bull market is, um, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So if you have a nice gain, you know, it's, it's good to take some of that off the table, put into some of the stuff that has underperformed. And this is the same thing, just doing it in the opposite direction. And one of the pluses of a sell-off like this is when you're going to some of these stocks now, you're getting yields that you haven't seen in years, uh, three, four, five, even up to seven or 8% yields, as long as these stocks can maintain their dividends, which uh, I think they will maintain them. And in that case, all we're doing is getting paid to wait. And you're not going to find a six or 7% yield in too many fixed incomes without taking a lot of risk. You know, you're right. As the stock prices fall, as long as those companies are well positioned, they have free cash flow and, and reserves, they're going to continue to pay those dividends. Uh, in fact, I was just looking at Exxon a couple days ago, and I think their dividend was somewhere around 9%. Uh, that's a incredible dividend. Will they keep it at 9%? I don't know. But even if they cut it in half, you're still at four and a half. On the whole, we've got a lot of things swirling around us. We've got a lot of headwinds here. The globe is under attack of this coronavirus. We've overdone this thing in a lot of ways. Uh, we're going to get through it. I think the uh, the dissipation of this coronavirus is uh, is not too far down the road, and and things will begin to normalize. So I just want to reiterate that. Roger, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate having you on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. 
So until our next podcast, remember, stay calm and avoid emotional impulses that may not be justified. Just remember this, impetuous decisions based on the media's passion for selling fear, that is not a strategy. Try to avoid obsessing over things that are unlikely to derail a well-designed strategy. And if you don't have a strategy, contact one of our associates. They will be glad to talk to you about ways to improve your outlook and your financial condition. We'll see you next time on We're Talking Money. Thanks for joining us on We're Talking Money. Be sure to visit our website, www.omnistarfinancial.com, where you can learn more about how we provide value to our clients. Subscribe to the show and our newsletters, and drop us a line with suggestions for upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. This podcast is a publication of Omnistar Financial Group. Any information provided has been prepared from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed, does not represent all available data necessary for making business or investment decisions, and is for informational purposes only and does not represent or constitute any recommendations. All expressions of opinion reflect that of the authors and are subject to change. If this podcast contains any projections, forecasts, guarantees, and or predictions of any kind, you're required to ignore the same. Omnistar is not engaged in the practice of law or accounting, and any information in this podcast should not be construed legal or tax advice. Any distributions, use, or copying of this podcast, other than the intended recipients, is unauthorized.